Quinn's, why is that music after the intro music? <laughs> you do make me laugh. Do, do I? Don't you know that the 143rd episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast is all about adventures? It is? We're going on some adventures! Now, you'll need your water shoes, snowshoes, uh, do you have a grappling hook? Here, you can borrow mine. Is this essential travel? The spirit of adventure is essential, yes, or you and I will surely perish. Just look at where we're going! Is this where you're gonna talk about the game? We're going to Lost Ruins of Arnak, a game of exploring an uninhabited island full of fearsome guardians. Is, is, is it problematic? Sort of, but basically no. We're going to be adventuring through time itself to fight a villain in the loop. If we're time traveling, can we do this intro again? And finally, we're going to be exploring fantasy realms. Loads of fantasy realms, in fact. See, seems unspecific. Quinn. And also the expansion to fantasy realms. Fantasy realms, the Cursed Horde. You couldn't make that work in this intro format, could you? No. So, up first, Tom and I are going to be talking about a board game called Lost Ruins of Arnak. This is designed by Min and Elwyn, two individual names, very enigmatic design duo, um, <laughs> and published by Czech Games Edition. Now, Lost Ruins of Arnak is a big, beautiful, lush box that celebrates adventure fiction. You and your friends are going to be arriving on a uh, sort of a band. Okay, well, this is where it gets weird. <laughs> so, uh, and it, it didn't take long, did it? So, um, Lost Ruins of Arnak imagines you as kind of 1920s adventurers arriving in an island in the style of Indiana Jones to uh, explore it, to overcome sort of like um, dangerous magical curses and whatnot, and uh, and locate artifacts. Um, but where this differs from your sort of like traditional culturally insensitive um, archaeologist, you know, like the, the sort of Indiana Jones archetype of just like taking stuff and dragging it back to your home country without thinking much about the people that live there. Lost Ruins of Arnak is trying to be a little bit more conscientious because first off, the items that you find in Lost Ruins of Arnak are mostly there to help you explore Arnak. And you are exploring the item with the stated goal of finding out more about the amazing people who lived here. Um, also, as much as you're going to be uh, encountering all sorts of huge magical monsters in Arnak as you explore it, the verb the manual uses is overcome. So you overcome the Guardian, often by giving them stuff, and then they tend to give you a boon, which implies that they're your friend afterwards. Um, it's all kind of open to interpretation. I'm sure lots of people who play Arnak will assume that you're just like bludgeoning these monsters to death with, <laughs> you know, throwing coins at them and jabbing arrowheads in their back but I'm on the designer's side that I imagine you giving them an arrowhead and then they give you a free ride to something or some points or a card I, I won't talk about the theme for too much longer, although I do want to stress that this board game is lush. Um, every card, the board, all the items and the monsters and the areas you're visiting have uh, what, what in the card game scene is called full bleed. There's no border around the card. You're just looking at the art and the art spills right to the edge of the tile or token or card or board or whatever it's on. Um, there is so much art in this game, but I'm not an artist. Uh, Tom, uh, on the on the podcast with me, is an artist. Tom, what? do you want to talk about the art in this game? Uh, firstly, that's lies and slander. It, yeah, it is true that there's nothing more slanderous than calling someone an artist. That's very rude. I apologize. <laughs> How dare you? No, it, it's everything in this game is super lush and high def and, and beautiful and gorgeous. You were saying that there's a sort of attention to detail paid to a lot of the art in this game that is unusual for this kind of thing. Like, if you have a grappling hook, for example, it's not just a drawing of, like, a grappling hook 
like in a blank voided background in in the the nether zone instead it's like <laughs> someone actively like throwing a grappling hook up and you can see it like catching on some terrain and little chunks of debris falling down or like if you've got like some boots there some of the most lush boots you're ever going to look at in a board game it's funny you mentioned the boots because yeah there's a card in this game that's just some boots there's another card which is just some like old-fashioned sandals and both of them are the most attractive drawings of shoes <laughs> i have ever seen in a board game also i've seen let me tell you tom in my 10 years working for shut up and sit down i've seen a lot of crap caves drawn uh <laughs> the, there's multiple caves illustrated on some of the locations in lost ruins of arnak that are just some of the most attractive and curious caves like they're caves i genuinely want to explore because of all the like stone carvings and natural rock features um i think i said the word lush about two minutes ago i'm gonna say it again lost ruins of arnak has lush art yes um However, as much as that's kind of an exciting intro to the game, weirdly, the game itself is uh, of that very stodgy genre of board games known as a Euro game, where you're mostly sort of, uh, rather than like fighting your friends or racing your friends, you're mostly sort of spending your turns to get resources and then use those resources in a clever way. So a very gentle kind of economic game rather than a board game of conflict and fighting. Um, and the way that this manifests in Lost Ruin of Arnak, uh, oh boy, um, if if you were to ask me what genre of game is Lost Ruins of Arnak, I would probably just say yes. Um, because, <laughs> so what? First off, we've this is kind of a worker placement game where every player has two archaeologists and you can send those archaeologists to different spots uh, to get resources. Like you might send them to the ruby cave to get a ruby or whatever. But you only have two workers, so you only get to do that twice in each of the game's five rounds. Also, it's kind of a deck building game because everyone starts the game with about six cards which can be spent to get you sort of exploration points that you use to explore or gold. Everyone also starts the game with two fear cards and fear cards are just bad cards that are worth negative victory points at the end of the game and do and serve no purpose except they do have a little shoe in the corner which means if you're particularly scared on your turn, meaning you drew a lot of fear cards, you can spend those fear cards to run away um, <laughs> and perhaps run one of your archaeologists to a place where there's something you and, need. And that shoe in the corner is a, is a less good shoe than the shoes we talked about earlier. It's a very small one it's not one of those gorgeous high def shoes it's a bad no. bad shoe it's just a simple icon shoe not a reward shoe exactly. board games are weird exactly um so then also there's this little shop of cards there are artifacts and sort of um there are ancient artifacts which are much better and uh modern items your archaeologist might buy or bring with you um and those cards when you acquire them go into your deck and then you can also discard cards out of your deck, which is mainly what I did. I used axes and machetes, which sort of semi-thematically allowed me to cut cards out of my deck. Or what I really liked is because I would acquire an axe, then use the axe to remove fear from my deck. The way I interpreted that theme is like, I've got an axe, I'm less afraid. Um, <laughs> even though I didn't actually kill anyone. Again, can't stress this enough. There's no killing of uh, of beautiful mystical beasts in Lost Ruin of Arnak. So it's not quite a worker placement game, but also this card sort of deck building mechanic you only go through your deck maybe once or twice in the game. You don't acquire many cards, so it's not really a deck-building game either. Um, is it an exploration game? Well, no, although you can explore. You can send your archaeologists off with cars or boats to explore deeper into the island to unlock new worker placement spaces. Um, but those spaces are all protected by monsters. Is it a game of fighting? No, because you kind of just give the monsters one or two uh, items, then they leave. Um, is it a game of collecting idols? Not really, although that's something. Is it a game of advancing up a giant track? I can report after two games of Lost Ruins of Arnak, I tried to advance <laughs> up the game's giant track. I lost two games in trying to do that, so it's not quite a game of advancing up a giant track either. Um, at the track, I should just round off this teach. 
by mentioning that uh, the track, which takes up a good third of the board, is sort of, it's kind of what you're here for. So as you acquire things like stone tablets and arrowheads and rubies, um, which in the physical version of the game, although we've been playing it digitally, are lovely little plastic um, pieces, um, three-dimensional, um, very brightly colored plastic tokens that you're collecting. You can then spend those tokens to um, advance up this track that sort of symbolizes how much you know about Arnak. So as you explore the island and find things, you can advance your little magnifying glass and your little notebook up this track, getting first off different resources and then lots of points as you sort of uh symbolically have discovered and mastered this island so that is a rough and very wonky teach for what is in my defense quite a wonky game uh tom would you like to uh describe how you felt exploring the lost ruins of Arnak? well you you used a lot of different words to describe what this game is but if, essentially it is a, another halfway house between a worker placement game and a deck building game similar Correct. to a game that we talked about uh, earlier on called dune imperium which i think me and ava were not that hot on but matt kind of liked you can go back and listen to that but there's there's a couple of these games coming out now which are these halfway houses between worker placement and deck builders and i've found similarly to dune imperium that by not leaning fully into either it's a little bit weaker as a result like i didn't really feel any ownership uh, of my deck and neither did i feel like i could accomplish masses with just my worker placement even if i made more spaces available by going off and overcoming these monsters but playing it a little bit more when you start leaning into looking at the board as a soup of well what can i do right now and having these sort of snappier more immediate point trade-offs that's when it kind of clicked a little bit um, mm -hmm. Like, I think it's really funny that I won both of our games of Lost Ruins of Arnak. Um, but I think it's because I was rewarded for sort of a complete lack of pre-planning. Um, so to clarify for the audience, Lost Ruins of Arnak is a game that I asked Tom to play with me twice. And Tom was kind of cool on twice. And it, that's kind of heartbreaking because as the person <laughs> who was more invested, to then lose the game twice despite trying my best does speak of like, I like this game, but I don't understand it as much as the person who likes it less. <laughs> well, because I found a strange thing where you talked about that track, right? There's this big track along the right where you spend stuff to move your little magnifying glass up it. You're researching more stuff. That track, in our first game, I didn't pay any attention to at all. I got a couple of points out of it. In the second game, I managed to do that as well as you, despite only sort of half focusing on it. And I think that comes from, in the game, if you go to these spaces to, to go and overcome these monsters and you give them stuff, when you go to that space, they give you a little couple things as well. And then when you overcome them, you get this one use tile. They're all these little bitty bonuses. And then you can spend those bonuses. Uh, you get these idols, they're worth points. You can spend them to do extra little one-off things. So it's incredibly flexible how you want to pursue that strategy. So I ended up, my turn structure was, I place my worker on one of those spaces. I see what that uh, monster needs. I give it a load of stuff. And then whatever I have left over, I use to do other bits and bobs. And then the turn rolls over again. It, it's a game that's very content to shower you in bonuses and little perks and one-offs that make those actions feel more substantial. But because so much is gained from that random assortment of goods that you can get from uh, the creatures, it does feel like a bit arbitrary at times. Yes, <laughs> I, I do agree. Um, I, I think if if we were being fancy, which I don't think either you and I are in the mood for no. on Sunday morning, we're no. trying to be relaxed. But some podcasters would refer to it as tactical more than strategic. Uh, I think you are dead right that... Um, yes, it's not, it, you can't get your teeth into it as a work placement game, as a deck builder, or even really as a resource management game. There is no grand strategy of looking at it and being like, 
like you don't come away from Lost Ruins of Anarch being like, oh, I understand deck building a little better, or I understand. I, and now I, I, I'm beginning to get to grips with this worker placement mm. thing and the balance of denying spaces my, to my opponent versus taking them for myself. Lost Ruins of Anarch, really for me, and when I enjoyed it the most, and when I felt like I was really connecting with what it was trying to do, is just this turn, what do you have? What do mm. you need? What do you want? And then, you know, you kind of spend those, re- it's like, oh, I'll spend an arrowhead in the stone tablet to advance up this track. Great, that seemed like a pretty good use of your turn. Now that has given you some gold. Oh, I guess I have quite a bit of gold. Next turn, maybe I'll go to the item shop. It's like, do you remember when we played it and I said to you, like, actually, despite it looking like this big, heavy Euro game with tons of beautiful components, it actually resembles a roll and write for me? That <laughs> yes. is that is a, a, a stupid thing to say. and I don't really stand by it. <laughs> but what I do mean is that, like, you described it a second ago as like, on your turn, what do I want to do now? What can I do now? Mm. And then what you get from those resources, what you get from the game in terms of new resources tends to be a little bit random. That's a roll and write for me. The core of a roll and write is like you roll some dice, you look at them, and you go, "Oh well, I guess I'll get this." Mm. It's it, that Arnak for me is a lot of that. It's I guess I'll do this, and then the game being like, "Cool, here's a new item, here's a new ability, here's a new monster, here's a new space." I always felt like the horizon on all of your decisions is pretty close to like just being the end of each round. Like there wasn't there weren't many turns in the game where I was queuing up stuff to go between rounds. And I think that yes. we should stress that maybe all of this roots from the fact that when we say it's halfway between a worker placement game and a deck builder, both of those genres in this game are very small. You have two workers to place in this game for yes. pretty much all of the game. And there are cards that break that and let you move your workers around, but they're quite expensive to use and quite expensive to get. And as far as deck builders go, like I don't know how many cards maybe we had maybe max like eight or ten cards in our in our um, using air quotes decks by the end of the game, um, and that's not a bad thing. It just means that the game is much more focused on like oh I fancy getting that card this round because it looks cool and I'll use it this round and then maybe it'll come up again and it'll form a little bit of a backbone of a strategy. But there's not much like oh I got this card on turn one and now it's gonna be more and more. It's going to be central to my strategy for the rest of the game. No, it's just it's, going to it's come actually, in and out of my hand. <laughs> you constantly playing Lost Ruins of Arnak, you can feel this, not quite frustration, but it's like the road just runs out. Like you might see like a really cool item that lets you move your archaeologist and then you'll be like, oh, I want to make that. A, oh, I, maybe I can make this part of my strategy. Oh, no, actually, I can't because I'm only going to see it once more in the game, if that. Mm. Or like, you know, you thinking, oh, oh I'm going to advance up the track like I thought, but actually that's not viable. <laughs> um, and that, if, if you go into Arnak expecting something big and juicy, yeah, you're absolutely not going to get it. But I've realized exactly what this game is, Tom. What is it? It's a, Don't say a roll and write. Nope. It's a, that, no, I have something maybe, maybe more clever, but not much more clever. It's, 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 a, it's a passable buffet at something like <laughs> not like not necessarily a funeral but maybe like an irish funeral oh my goodness but no i'm trying to look here, i'm trying to this just, game is a funeral <laughs> no it's a buffet at a funeral okay, okay. but the funeral is immaterial the funeral was just there to help you understand the kind of buffet i'm talking about mm-hmm. think about like sandwiches that aren't bad okay maybe funeral isn't quite right but then like maybe there's like some chicken fingers uh-huh. and then there's some crisps where like th- but think about it arnak is kind of a tour of a lot of really good board games. So it's mm. it, it gives you a taste and some of the fun of deck building. It gives you a taste of worker placement, but it's not like if you screw up your worker placement, you're going to come last. 
it gives you a little bit, most importantly, that I think you and I as veteran board gamers have not really paid as much attention to, but a little bit of exploring. I think that thrill, and we haven't talked much about this yet, but sending your archaeologist off to a new worker place in space without even knowing what mm. it's going to be, whether it'll be a jungle or a, a, a cave or a mountaintop. And then also, not only do you find a new place, it comes with this gorgeous guardian monster, yeah. that, like whether it's a flying scarab or... Do you remember when we were playing our game last and I just found like 400 giant ants and it was like, <laughs> oh God, I, I'm not prepared to deal with this at all. It gives you a little bit of the thrill of that exploration which an exploration is like the foundation of lots and lots of very popular board games sure i think it gives you a little sampling of some of the greatest hits of modern board games yeah i can get behind that like i think it's i think that we we've sounded quite down on this uh potentially but i think it is at the end of the day a very solid well put together little thing it's fun it's satisfying and especially we played it on board game arena the implementation is fabulous and mm. just a little thing it doesn't always tell you who's winning which is normally really disheartening like it's the first game i've seen on board game arena where it adds up the score in real time in a in a nice way oh i like that it doesn't you mean it doesn't add your score in real time oh no no yeah so it was well as in like all the individual scores come up one after another right at the end and it's like oh we're yes. gonna get more oh we're gonna get more and that's how actual board game scoring works which is great um i just think that it's lacking sort of a nebulous something that's going to propel it into being really really like compelling as a strategic and tactical experience or alternatively it might have a little bit too much in it to make something that's like truly a and i'm doing very big air quotes here like a gateway game it's somewhere in that middle ground but i do agree that it's like a whistle-stop tour of fun little mechanics it could be a way of saying to someone hey which of this <laughs> which of which part of this buffet do you like the most then i'll get the next you know the higher grade of that <laughs> oh, stuff yeah. the next time so for 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 the people listening, um, the reason that Tom and I are approaching this in kind of a funky way is that uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak has received so much love and adoration, so many high ratings. It's currently ranked as the seventy seventh highest board game of all time, and more ridiculously and more in a more wobbly fashion, because this is where board game starts to get weird. It's the fourth best family game Oof. ever, <laughs> d- despite the fact that the box says it's only for years twelve and older. Um, so Tom and I are approaching this not being curmudgeons, but like Tom, I think completely fairly is looking at this being like, this isn't the 77th best game of all time. And I'm kind of with you. But for me, I'm trying to see what other people are seeing in it because 7,000 ratings on Board Game Geek and an average of 8.2 out of 10 is about as high as like, uh, as high as anything is on Board Game Geek. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we are, maybe we are being curmudgeons and lost. I don't think, I don't think we're wrong. I think that it's resonating with a lot of people who haven't played as many board games with us. And obviously, that's awesome. If, if people are getting really excited about a, a more... Like, it's not quite a gateway game. Mm. It's not quite Catan. Or maybe it is. Maybe with things like Slay the Spire and uh, so many board game mechanics arriving in the video game scene, maybe people are more familiar with things like deck building and worker placement. That's... So maybe Lost Ruins of Arnak is a new gateway game for 2021. Well, that's why I, I, I'm hesitant to use the words gateway game or I do it in air quotes because it's like... Uh, for my friends uh, at university, their gateway game was Twilight Imperium. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> but you can't gather. Like I think it's a useful term when you're when you're. Tw- I think family game is often a better f- t- uh, turn of phrase than gateway game because 
whoever you're introducing to this hobby will have various degrees of experience coming into their first game. So if you're pitching Lost Ruins of Arnak to the right people, then I'm sure it can be, you know, a gateway game because they might have a knowledge of all these other systems that it's trying to bring in that might be alienating. But that's where sure. I think it maybe is more of a gateway game than it is a family game because introducing it to people who, you know, my family for example, would probably bounce off this pretty hard. <laughs> no, my family would not would not play this in any way, shape or form. Um, and I would be hesitant to put it in front of non-gamers because I do think it's quite bitty. You know, mm. I think like that that track at the side of the board, get to the top of that track is hard. Yes. You know, yeah, you, need, you need to see in two turns, you're going to need like two more rubies to get to the top. So there's how many spaces are there that present rubies? One, well, you need to get that space first, mm -hmm. you know, and if you screw that up, then there's your game last. Um, it's, it's, it's really, but like June Imperium, I think, you know, we were talking about this in the Shut Up and Sit Down Slack. It's clearly a time where a lot of people are familiar with worker placement. A lot of people are familiar with that building and games that combine the two are really exciting. People. Selling like hotcakes. That's <laughs> just selling like hotcakes. But, uh, well, I'm, uh, this is kind of the last point I have to say before you uh, want to wrap this up. But for a long time, I've kind of been a little bit frustrated or disappointed with some of the gateway games on offer. For whatever reason, I do not get along very much with Lords of Waterdeep. I spent a long time, and I think I was wrong about this, not liking Dominion a great deal. Uh, and Ticket to Ride I'm fine on, but it's not something I'd choose to play. Lost Ruins of Arnak is the first kind of, if it is a gateway game, it's the first gateway game that I've kind of been on board with. I think it mm. looks so nice. Uh, I mean, I have a soft spot for problematic 1930s adventure fiction, so I like <laughs> seeing it presented here um, in a way that's slightly more palatable to a modern audience. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm not from a dispossessed and colonized culture, so, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, but uh, I, I like it. I think it, I think it's kind of neat. I enjoyed both of our games of it, even though I lost twice, and I'm still... But I can't... If I if I'd won at least one of them, I could, I'd feel more confident about that. But, <laughs> but maybe I only like it because I don't understand it yet. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's it that you're you're grappling with it, and as soon as you, because I felt like when I was playing, all the moves I were taking felt fairly obvious. I felt the same way about this as I would feel about something like Lords of Waterdeep. Maybe your your losing of the game is what's compelling you onwards to find out more about it and, and dig for that treasure. But in reality, like like a lot of those games, a lot of those family games, I don't really like them either. But I really respect what part they play. The function of a of, of a family game, of a gateway game, is almost by necessity that it's not going to appeal to veteran gamers. I, again, mm. I'm doing so many air quotes at this podcast. I I've found that I kind of need to let go of like playing a gateway game or a family game that's going to be a really like deeply satisfying experience. The satisfaction I'm going to pull out of it is from the people I'm playing it with and watching them engage with it in a, in a in a fun way and introducing them into the hobby. I'm not saying that like each game that I play it that's gonna that i'm gonna introduce to my family is one where i'm necessarily gonna have the most compelling strategic experience you know i've got pipeline for that you know no yeah and this is not a ticket to ride or a dominion where i would still enjoy playing them lost ruins of Arnak is not a game that's gonna bridge that divide where the hardcore gamer can oh maybe maybe it is maybe it is I we're out of touch we're out The next game we're going to be talking about is The Loop, a 2020 release designed by Maxime Ramberg and Theo Riviere and uh, with art by, uh, with lovely art by Simon Caruso and published by Catch Up Games and Pandasaurus and some other publishers. Modern board game publishing is very confusing. <laughs> um, the Loop is a game of 
time travel! Yes, it's actually been done quite a few times in board games, but it's it's very cute and camp this time. So, yes. in the loop, you are agents of... Uh, you are temporal agents uh, in the game that Tom and I played. Tom, you are Mr. Time, I believe. <laughs> I love Mr. Time. He's my favourite character uh, in any board game ever. And his gorgeous pink jacket... He's Italian as well. Oh, he had a great. He had a mohawk that was cool. I don't. Oh, he was just great. I fell in love uh, with yeah. Mr. Time. Uh, and I played uh, Robo Finisher Four Hundred Four, oh, a, yeah. a murder assassin, a sexy robot assassin from the future, and she had a sniper rifle, a shotgun, and an energetic time wig. Or yeah, an energy wig. I, I loved the wig. It had a rainbow inside it. It was great. Oh yeah, a rainbow of like yeah. No, it, the art in this game is um. It's is fun. Really it's lovely. just fun. It's, and it's like it's not just it's it's fun, but it's also quite abstract. Like yeah. it, like it, it's very kind of breakfast cereal. But um, that's a that's a great way of putting it. Breakfast cereal core, we love it. <laughs> yeah, but sort of better than if breakfast cereal looked like this, I would still eat it. Um, <laughs> so, what you've got in this game is a board which is kind of six pie segments, and in the middle a plastic tower in which the sinister Doctor Foo. Uh, will uh, be rotating and dropping red cubes into the board because board games. So in this game, you and your friend are going to be traveling between these pie segments which represent different eras of humanity. So there's like the dawn of time. It gets really stuck in like history because there's medieval, yeah. then renaissance, then like industry, then war, then futures, then apocalypse. I don't know. Is that six? That's yeah, it's something six. like that. Something like that. Um, and it loops. So at the end of uh, the apocalypse, after the apocalypse, it goes back to the dawn of time again, which I wasn't sure if that was a reference to like humanity wipes itself out and starts again. So you and your friend are going to pick your characters. You're going to set up this board. You're going to get your starting items and you're also going to pick your game mode. Um, so like the best co-op games, um, there's there's staying power in the loop. And in this case, the staying power comes from not just different difficulty settings, but different modules you can put in. So always, as you play the game, Dr. Fu is going to be uh, dispatching duplicates of himself and trying to uh, harm and damage timelines. Um, and you're going to be running around cleaning that up. But also, um, by playing through the different modes of uh, the sabotage is the default. There's also the cyan super duplicates. Uh, there's the laser centrifuges. There's the ultra machina. Uh, oh we haven't goodness. played any of those. But no. yeah, they, they, they add more horrible modules for if you even begin to know what you're doing. Tom, would you like to explain on a more mechanical level what on earth is going on <laughs> in the loop? Sure. Uh, you've got this big circular board, like Quinn's mentioned, with a cylinder in the middle. That's Dr. Fu. And that cylinder is going to spit out like these bad vibe cubes, these little red cubes into segments of the board uh, each turn. The, the, and each segment represents a different period of history. And you're also going to be placing those discs that represent clones of Dr. Fu, and they'll cause more of those bad vibe cubes to arrive in any segment that they're in. And if too many cubes accumulate in a segment, then that segment gets all broken. And if that happens too many times, then you lose. It's kind of like a pandemic setup where you're sort of putting out fires as they arrive, whilst you're also trying to accomplish these variable objectives. Um, but Should we mention it's a cooperative game? Yes, it's actually, a <laughs> which I, I I completely forgot to do. I think the the listeners must have understood at somewhere along that that it's a co-op game. Um, but you're time traveling agents with these mad names. You can try and solve all this mess. And after doing all that start of the round mess creation, uh, you'll take turns with actions given to you by three cards uh, drawn from your own personal equipment deck each turn. And each of these cards has an ability. So maybe a card will let you clear cubes from a region, or maybe a card will let you push those clone discs around. And if you return them to the right colored regions, the ones where they're from, then you'll wipe them off the board. Uh, but crucially, you can only do each one of these cards once, and you can only move once. Um, but... 
if there's energy cubes, these little green cubes in your segment, you can spend those to do a loop, which refreshes all the cards that you just played, so long as they have a matching symbol. You're going to require more of these cards by ending in certain segments of the board, so it's kind of, again, a little bit of a deck builder, where you're trying to match up all these symbols so you can do more efficient loops. An example of a loop might be, so you might, on your turn, move, and then punch, and then pull an enemy towards you, and then you can loop to then punch that enemy into a different segment, and then move again, and pull something with you into another region. So it's got this very satisfying, crunchy, peppy combo system on most of your turns, where you'll just be playing this, like, I'm going to do this, and this, and this, and this, and bap, 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 and you feel very efficient, and then the game will then deal out a really bad hand to you next turn of, like, loads of rubbish cubes and the cards that don't match. Because um, sometimes you're going to have fallow turns in this game, but you'll know that from the outset. So you take those turns real quick, you sort of do what you can, but when you've got multiple symbols, you're sort of like cracking your knuckles, being like, right, let's go. <laughs> um, I don't know, I think this game is really neat. Uh, you were right when we were uh, talking it about it, where it's best with two. Uh, but it's super fast, and it's super fun, it's full of nice flavour, and the art is really great and stylized and slick. Um, it's got a really nice rhythm to it as well, where, of course... Um, uh, Yes, every turn begins with bad stuff. Then you have a nice combo, which is which is really satisfying. But then at the end of your turn, you've got this lovely um, reveal. A new item will be added to one of the six regions. For example, a quantum bandage or a literal bag of tricks. Or, <laughs> God, you got a time train at one point? Yeah. I don't know where you got that from. It was just a little, all... <laughs> little toy train locomotive, but somehow it let me like do a full loop of the board or something bonkers. It was great. Uh, yeah, I had a grappling hook that let me pull people through timelines. Yeah, it's very weird because, like, oh, God, it's almost, I think, a better thing for this would almost be like an Errol Flynn style swashbuckling game. Sure. Because you're sort of like running real like we are lit like the only real place that the time travel well, I guess the loops that allow you to reset your turn and play it again sort of have a little bit of time travel flavor, but mostly the time travel flavor is coming from like at the end of your turn you draw a card and it's like I don't know, some kind of cyber Mona Lisa and you gotta put that in the Renaissance era. And so gradually <laughs> as you play, more and more era appropriate items will build up in a region. And that becomes another consideration because let's say, like you say, obviously it benefits to collect items that all have the same symbol to as they randomly come at your deck to maximize your chance of efficient loops. So if you get a turn where you have all star items, you can loop and do all those items again, and that's incredible. Um, but that means that in addition to kind of swinging through time to put out fires, you're also trying to end your turn in areas where you can collect the item you want. Um, but again, it's if if I had a word to describe the loop, I would say it's like acrobatic. Yeah. Um, you know, you're you're dashing between these segments to grab an item, then kick someone over into you know another timeline. But this is what I'm saying. To me, the loop felt best when I was using my shotgun and my grappling hook and my boots to like <laughs> you know kick down the door into the next timeline and punch someone into the next region and hook someone into my region. And that, to me, speaks of, like, a swashbuckling game rather than a time travel game. Quincy, you're forgetting uh, that you are kicking someone with your boots. You are kicking them through time. And that's a good <laughs> sentence. That's a very it good is. sentence. I mean, it, the game, we should say, the in case you haven't guessed as well, the writing in this game is lovely. It's There's no, like... There are sort of mission descriptions and you can get you can read more about the lore of what on earth is happening and what you're doing. <laughs> but mostly the writing in the loop gets out of your way and it's just really funny names of cards, funny names of enemies and really funny theme interactions where, yes, I'm stuck on this grappling hook, but my goodness, it is awfully fun to slingshot a grappling hook through two eras of time and pull <laughs> someone from the medieval era into the present where they vanish because that's not where they're supposed to be. Yeah. It's although no, hold on, because that's where the theme kind of falls down. You're trying to get people into the region they're meant to be in. It's like you, if you manage to hook like someone from the Stone Age 
into the Stone Age, that's when they disappear, which was kind of strange. But you know what? Yeah. We'll take it. It's fine. Um, uh, but I think that the, the thing that I was going to say about this game, which I think I'm very positive on this. I think it's peppy. I think it's fun. I think it's really like crunchy and interesting. Like we, it was, it gave us a fair challenge. You know, like we, there were turns where we were like, oh no, are we actually going to lose this game? Which well, is yeah. There, at the end, right. it was. I think on our last couple of turns, it it was a case of put. We should mention the the cubes that the the this cylinder in the center of the board dispatches. It's a little dice tower with baffles. So you mm. drop in three or four red cubes, and they will mostly spill into the uh, time segment directly in front of the tower. But they might go to the left or right as well. Yeah. And in doing that process, there were turns where Tom and I were like, if the cubes come out wrong, we've lost this game. Yes. Which for two professional board game reviews on the easiest difficulty setting <laughs> is you it's know that tells you a little bit of, about how tricky the game is yeah but ha having said that right so i'm sort of imagining the person that would play this game like often uh, and i and i i've got a thesis statement uh, which is that i think i find these kind of co-ops less appealing in a post-pandemic legacy world um mm. i'm not saying that i don't enjoy co-op games i just think that often i tend to prefer quick card games in my co-ops rather than these longer more involved games and the loop did everything super correct i just think it's not to my taste after those highs of those bigger box co-ops that are a little meatier and with more sort of discovery in the box oh that yeah i see if i'm if i'm playing a co-op game yeah for me if, if if i'm not playing pandemic legacy for review then uh <laughs> i guess the co-op game i played the most is the arkham horror living card game which is again it's not I mean, it's not a legacy game it's a campaign game you know mm. it's evolving with time or as you and i've discovered over the last year you say post-pandemic world let's talk about the fact that this year you and i got into solo games and games yes. like Arion and other solo games that are good that i mean we've well, been playing a lot of super skill pinball 4k oh, the best solo game of all time so yes th these these big box co-op games that bring to mind the era when we were playing ghost stories in pandemic around 2011 yeah have like it's hard to say it's it's hard to choose to play the loop over uh, something like gloomhaven or mm. uh, arkham horror living card game or you know um a, a solo game or a, a video game you know it's it's a difficult it's it's kind of yeah i, I think you, your thesis statement might have some accuracy to it, it it's also perhaps like i think it would work better if it was if there was a campaign or if you felt there were like there were stakes or something. But I feel like it's one of those games where if you lose, you go, ah, and then you wouldn't want to play that scenario again. You just move on to the next one, the higher difficulty anyway, potentially. Mm, it's, it is it is true. There are like, yeah, no, there's three difficulty settings and four modes in the loop. So technically there's like, yeah, and if they just put the expansion components that I just put into baggies in envelopes, maybe, <laughs> then it's like, I would, true, true or false, Tom, you and I played one game of this and I'm like, that was awesome, but let's move on. If we had finished the game and opened an envelope and it said play again with this additional component, which we could have done, it just, the, I bagged the envelopes, the designers <laughs> didn't put them in an opaque envelope, would we have played a second game? Quite possibly. I, I think we might have, yes. yeah. I think that there's there's so much to go on for like having novelty in your co-op games and for them to slowly evolve and stuff. And I do think that it's in a weird position where... If, if money was no object and someone just wanted to buy and play the loop like five times, I'd be like, yeah, go for it. But then when for a little bit more, I don't know how much it costs, to be fair, but for a little bit more, you could get one of these more luxury bespoke campaign experiences that sure won't last forever, but it will be something that you'll enjoy your time with potentially more because it has those stakes going between games. Yeah, um, I think you've hit on something here. I don't I don't want the message we broadcast on the podcast to be like all co-op games need to be campaigns now because I feel like <laughs> that is just going to lead to a lot of really bad campaign games. But equally, the thing about co-op games is that you have to be at a similar level skill level to your to your friends to 
to prevent quarterbacking, mm. to prevent... Like, if I played 10 games of the loop then invited you over, I would be like, well, Tom, obviously you don't do that, do this. You fool. So, you, so ideally, you want to be ex- experiencing that game from the first play onwards together. But if that is the case, then yes, a campaign does kind of fit, even if it's a simple gimmicky one. Goodness. I'm, I mean, I, oh, no, I was going to mention My City because I briefly had a brain fart thought it was a co-op game. Uh, <laughs> it is, of course, not. But My City's a good game, isn't it, Tom? Justify this uh, this secretary. My City's a great game, but you know what's a better game than My City that is a co-op? I I always (laughs) land back on The Crew being such a game that does so much with so little. It's such a fantastic... Like, it does kind of... It has that campaign. You don't really care about the actual progression of the campaign. It's more just it slowly drip-feeds in these mechanics. But The Crew is just, like, my go-to co-op at this point because it's just so, like, lightning in a bottle, just, like, fantastic small box card game that's so cheap and so fun and so replayable um and it's yeah i feel like it's going i'm categorizing my co-ops now where i feel like there's a there's less and less room for these boxed like medium weight co-op games either i want my co-op games to be massive campaign things or i want them to be so small you can put them in your pocket Oh, but it's so sad that, and such a weird quirk of human psychology that in the loop you've got like five playable characters of which you and I only trade two, a huge deck of items of which in our game we saw maybe 10% of yeah. them, four game modes and three difficulty settings of which we did one of those 12 possible combinations. And yet, because all of those components were presented to us at once, we just opened the box and when you came over I had all that stuff laid over my table. <laughs> um it, we didn't feel the inclination to play it again. Whereas if all that extra stuff had been tucked into envelopes and hidden, yeah, we would have played it again. That's weird. I and I feel bad for, for the des- <laughs> You know what I mean, though? Like, how crap for the designers to do all this extra content and then just give it to you up front because, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> but in, in giving it to your, your players up front, the, the, the experience of exploring this campaign together is somehow lessened. Put everything into envelopes, designers. Everything goes into envelopes in 2022. (laughs) We're calling it now. It's the year of the envelope. Let's wrap up this podcast by talking about a little simple card game called Fantasy Realms. It's called Lord of the Places. It's called... I'm trying to think of other generic fantasy names. I need Elf Quest. Uh, Elf Quest is a real thing. Is Elf Quest a real thing? Yes, my wife is very into it. (laughs) Just keep going, keep going. Okay, Uh, this is an incredibly simple card game that we played recently, and it's really nice and breezy. Um, Essentially, the setup for Fantasy Realms is it's this simple card game where the objective is just to hold the best hand at the end of the game. You get dealt seven cards at the start, and you will always have seven cards in your hand for the whole game. And immediately, you're going to look at these cards, and you're going to see that they all have names, suits, and text that you're going to use to build up a combo. For example, in your hand, you might have a Beastmaster, and he's worth 10 points on his own, but he's also worth an extra 10 points if you give him a Beast. And you've also got a cool wizard staff, and that's worth five points on its own, but it's worth an extra 15 if you give it to a card of the wizard suit. And luckily, your Beastmaster is a wizard suit card, so you can combo that all together. But, oh, you've got a a naff wizard who blanks all of your other wizards, making them worth nothing, so you need to get rid of him. But he combos well with your bell tower and your war dirigible that you've already got. (laughs) So the basics of the game is trying to build up this ideal hand of synergies by combing your hand uh, and and making sure that you've got all the cards comboing together really nicely and no cards that are going to blank the other cards and, and cancel each other out. 
And it's all kind of kept afloat by this very simple core loop where each turn you'll take a card and discard a card. Your options for taking a card, you can either top it, you can either top deck it, you can take a card from the top of the deck, or you can pick from the available discards and then you'll discard a card to stay at the hand limit. And the game ends when you've got 10 cards in the discard pile total. And this means that when you're top decking, you're adding a card to those discards. Whereas if you're taking from the discards, then you're maintaining the number of cards currently in it. And if all cards, all the cards in that discard are splayed, so you can pick anyone from that pile. And once there are 10 cards, the game is over and everyone totals up the points in their hand. And I want to preface all of this by saying that my most enduring memory of playing Fantasy Realms across the five or six or seven times I've played it was that dealing out that hand of cards to everyone around the table and explaining the basic gist of the game and going, eh, this this could be rubbish because the game definitely isn't a looker. Um, but just the thing that I remember is immediately having everyone look at their actual cards and just groaning and laughing as they sift through all their cards and work out some kind of strategy from this soup of stuff that they've been given uh, at the start of the game. Like you really have to look at that hand of cards and just go, oh my God, how am I going to make this whole thing work? In uh, terms of, I think, describing the feel of the game, I would love for you to tell your story about what happened with the elven archers when you played it in a pub. <laughs> oh, when, when I when I picked up the, the elven archers, which I misread as 11 archers, and then was continually playing that card to the center of the table and going, anyone can have the 11 archers, and then getting something in my hand that meant I actually wanted the 11 archers and going, oh no, actually I'll have them back. And then next turn I had something that cancelled them out and I was like, okay, I'll put them back into the center of the table again and my whole game was just literally me picking up and putting down this card because I was so uncertain about whether I wanted it in my hand to the point that I eradicated any semblance of strategy in my game well that's it it's it's a game of uh you know you'll have a, a combo you might have two combos you're building towards like I in the game we played most recently I just got really into weather because <laughs> you know you can have lightning that's that's blank unless it comes with rain and then if rain is with a flood then the flood gets extra points but then the yep. flood blanks basically everything because you're basically living in like Noah's Ark world at that point <laughs> and that's fine because maybe you live in Noah's Ark world full of elementals and they really like the flooded watery yes. world or, or maybe, uh, but, but then, maybe you have some archers and you, you want to keep them safe and then you see that there's a little boat and you take the boat and then that protects them from the rest of the weather. Like It does all yeah. kind of make sense in a very cute little way. Oh, it does. And I really like that at the end of the game, um, you know, it's, especially I, our friend Chris um, got really into this. Uh, like we were talking about our points and then Chris was like, but what's what's everyone's fantasy realm? Yeah. Like, oh, yes, of course. My fantasy realm is a beast master and his snake and a desert. <laughs> yeah. and, like because seven cards isn't quite enough. Like sometimes you can have like, like in the second game we played, it's like, oh, I've got a princess and a unicorn and she's got a magic, magic staff and she lives in a forest with some elves. But then sometimes it's just like there's a fire. And <laughs> that's about basically it there's, there's seven flame cards it's just like the idea of like because sometimes you can really conjure up like something that's quite evocative you know you're, you're right yeah. you can have like my legions of armies on their war dirigibles come forth out of the flood and then on the other hand it's like my amulet is sitting in the middle of a desert on a ground with a guy just looking at it and that's my <laughs> fantasy realm <laughs> Remember the there's there's two cards one of which is the the shield of keith and the other is the, sh the sword, sword of, of keith, keith. <laughs> Yeah, and if you get the shield there, the sword, that's amazing. But probably you want someone holding them as well. Yeah. Like, it's, 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 also, I, you said this game is definitely not a looker. What, it, and, you know, actually, there's a couple of, uh, there's a few, there's a very sexy water dry. It's quite boobular, basically. It's very boobular. There's, it's not. The, it's... Let me tell you, if, 
if you want a fantasy realm where with women that have uh, uh, just giant norks, let me tell you, <laughs> fantasy realm's got you covered. No, it's it's it, it's kind of throwbacky nineteen eighties art, but again, I kind of have a. Uh, this is weird because Shut Up and Sit Down can be quite um, arch and critical of uh, sort of traditional fantasy themes. But if you are going to do a fantasy theme, one of the back doors into my heart is making it look kind of classic and old fashioned. Um, sort of almost <laughs> fantasy art before I was born. And Fantasy Realms at times gets close to that when it's not putting huge cans on, you know, like dryads or elves or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I would say that it's definitely not like it's not a classy version of that pulp. Fantasy. no it's not it's not but if you if i'm looking at if i draw a card and it's got a unicorn on and the unicorn is just like a sort of classic 1989 unicorn i'm like that's a unicorn well, it, you know it, what i mean kind of isn't it kind of isn't it's like that if you no. downscaled all of the detail i don't want to rag yes. on it too much but it is like you know it's classic fantasy by way of ms paint like it's not yeah. <laughs> it's not you're completely right gorgeous um, no. But that's the thing, right, is that this game is, and I was also going to say that I think I do have other like negative points about this game, where I don't really know how compelling it is on like a strategic layer, in that sometimes you could just, like in one of the games we played, I just got dealt an amazing combo on turn one, and that just kind of happens. Sometimes you can just get dealt a very good combo, and you just sit on it and make it a little bit better, but you've just, you know, you've been dealt an 100 and you know you've been dealt an 190 point hand, and your friend's been dealt a 5 point hand at the start of the game, and there's nothing to <laughs> mitigate against that. Um, no, it is. It's not a strategic. It, it can be strategic, and there are really interesting decisions in it. Uh, are you going to lo- lo- win every time if you if you make the best decisions? Maybe not. Yeah. Um, but then, Tom, just before this podcast started, you were talking about having an amazing time playing uh, startups by Oink Games. Yes. Um, you and I had a great time playing Lost Cities uh, last time we were over here. Like card games featuring a lot of luck is not necessarily a bug. It can almost certainly be a feature, yes. especially in that genre. And, and it's so quick and breezy that you mitigate against that luck because you can play like five hands of Fantasy Realms in an hour, and you will have probably won one of those games by law of averages. Um, and, and that's also not to say that there is a really lovely little system in there with when the cards start getting discarded and you have a little pile of options, it becomes so sort of like tempting where it's like you you want to like, if you pick up that card, you go, oh, and that could combo with this and this, but it's risky because I need this card to come out. And like they're sitting at you and, you're, and they're going, there's, be- there's better options in here. And you just want to take a dip and you want to grab one of those cards, but you're sacrificing maybe a really good hand to take that card. Yes, um, my my favorite. Ra- I mean, th- when we say you know, like, oh, you might get unlucky or lucky and win or lose. Like the fact that that's not a problem to me is highlighted by the fact that I lost my favorite game of Fantasy Realms because what wasn't important was how lucky I got or how well I did. What was important is that I had, oh goodness, I had like the Tree of Life in my hand, which is like <laughs> a fifty point card if every card in your hand is different. And then I also had every, every card in your hand is from a different suit. The Tree of Life wants, you know, life of all kinds from, from in your fantasy realm. Fine, great. I also, that I think you maybe even discarded an amulet. And the amulet turns the game on its head by the amulet gives you a point or is worth exponentially more points for every run mm. numerical run of cards so it, it you're then at that point playing a different game where you want like a barbarian who's worth two points a knight who's worth three points a sword that worth four points and so on and i thought oh that's way better than the world tree i'm just gonna go for that so i picked up the amulet and then proceeded to spend the next 15 minutes of our game being pulled in two directions by these two different strategies going oh no i will do the world tree oh no i will do the amulet and then the game ended and i just had garbage like my fantasy realm was tonally and numerically completely inconsistent it was just it was just a crap hole and it that was so much fun for me yeah it's a game that won't let you tread water for too long because you know 
top decking, bringing new stuff into the game just advances the game one tenth of the way through it. And you can have things where you get dangerously close to that line and then the game will just end really quickly. And you're like, well, I spent too long worrying about how this water elemental is going to combo with Moraine. And now <laughs> I'm sitting on a rubbish realm. Uh, yeah and it's a game it's so it's such a good card game because it encourages you to chase perfection as well yes. where like you know even if like say let's say you've got a great seven card hand and you want to end the game the game ends when there are uh, what, ten. 10 cards in the top yeah, yeah. yeah so to um to end the game if you've got a good hand you have to draw from the top of the deck and then just discard something but then what will happen is you'll be like oh okay i need to fill up the shop to end the game because i've got a great hand <laughs> you'll draw a card then you'll be like Oh, necromancer! That's pretty cool. Actually, <laughs> hang on. How how can I like? Maybe I, maybe I don't want to end the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then suddenly it's like you've got another halfway strategy, and it's like it's just really uh, it's 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 cool. It's and cool and um, the the scoring can be kind of bitty, but there is a WizKids app that uh, that is really very good. Where you just you click through the suits, and it's got actually quite good music and sound and feel. Uh, I was really impressed by the <laughs> the, the official WizKids app fan, uh, subsection. The Fantasy Realm scoring assistant is better than better than you expect. Um, unfortunately, the scoring assistant does not yet, at the time of this podcast, have the functionality of the Fantasy Realms expansion. Mm. which is Fantasy Realm Cursed Horde. Um, now, this is an ex a small box expansion for a small box card game, but I think it's pretty cool. It's certainly worth buying, in my humble opinion, if you're playing uh, a fair bit of Fantasy Realms. It adds a bunch of new cards to add to the deck, so you get more variety, more color, more flavor. Um, it also extends the game, because uh, in order to make sure everything combos correctly when you thicken that deck, um, everyone plays with bigger hands, so you're not playing with a seven-card hand, you're playing with an eight-card hand, and the game ends not when there's 10 cards in the shop, but when there are 12. So the expansion module one does just thicken the game mm -hmm. make it juicier longer bigger the second expansion which we didn't play with and haven't played with yet is a whole bunch of uh cursed artifacts so <laughs> everyone gets a random cursed artifact from the deck in front of them like you might get a haunted telescope and i might get a, a witch's you know shoe and then that gives you a special ability that you can use on your turn, but every item is worth a certain number of negative points. So if you decide to use your Witch's Shoe to take two cards from the shop this round or whatever, you turn that face down and you get negative points. But also, I love this feature, every time you use your Cursed Artifact, you get another one. So like, if you're like, so if you go, okay, I'll use my Witch's Shoe because that's negative 15 points, but I think it's worth it. Then you get another tempting of like, well, well do you want, you know, the Goblin's Hat? And it's like, oh no, that becomes another <laughs> temptation that sits in front of you for the whole game. Which is, which is the spirit of the whole game right like that's yeah a microcosm isn't it really just like look at that thing do you want to do the thing oh i bet you do think about how perfect it would be if you did the thing and then you do the thing it's... and the game's like you fool <laughs> never have done the thing. and then and then because it's a quick card game your friends are also like you fool you really goofed that <laughs> and uh you're just getting it from all angles um so weirdly you and i are like this is just this is a bit of fun you you saying the art's not great i'm not saying this is like the greatest card game ever and yet in this hour-long podcast we've talked about lost ruins of arnak a game in the bgg top 100 that you and i are like uh, we don't know if we'd encourage anyone to buy it we've talked about the loop where you and i are like uh we didn't play a second game of it even though it's really good we i don't know who i definitely tell people to buy it is fantasy realms our recommendation on this podcast then yes even sure. though it's kind of the most mediocre game I, I of the think three if you can if you can get fantasy realms for cheap it's purely just a joyous experience to tell your friends what the game is which is that you have a hand of cards and you discard them and you play them and that's the whole game and just laugh at how like it's like how do we get to this point <laughs> like I, I i will uh try and provide a more sensible conclusion fantasy realms is good and i liked it and i'm keeping my copy yeah i think yeah i think i'm gonna keep my copy as well like it's a nice little breezy thing i can bring it to the pub it's a nice one and i do i do feel bad for 
talking about Lost Ruins of Arnak and the Loop, which are very competent, well put together, like excellent <laughs> examples of, of the hobby and games and being so down on them and being so positive about something that has bad trad fantasy artwork and is very yes, simple you and, and I frivolous. have chosen to stand the game where it's fun because in your opening hand of cards you're like a lightning bolt and a unicorn um, <laughs> wow it's like a one yeah, of those, like hero quest adverts or something like from the 90s it's just like art like eyes like popping out of our heads like wow a barbarian uh, well let's 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 try and readjust the cosmic balance then by maybe just suggesting who we think lost ruins of arnak and the loop are for so i'll, I'll start i think lost ruins of arnak is great for people who are just starting out just building their board game collection and want a game that looks great that is pretty consistently interesting that doesn't take too long and doesn't have too many rules i think lost ruins of arnak is a really good game if you're looking for a simple game that comes in a big flashy box uh, i would I, go that, further as to say that it's i think it's like <laughs> it's in between a gateway game inverted commas and like a proper like like oh, and a proper also inverted commas uh gamers game or whatever i think it's in that really nice <laughs> sweet spot which is like hey you've tried your ticket to rides let's do a little bit let's get a little bit fruitier and that's where both of, i think that's where both of those games sit you've played pandemic you want something fruitier maybe you should get the loop before going on to something like pandemic legacy for example um, I think the loop is also. I would re fully recommend it to anyone who just wants that flashy camp, uh, brightly coloured uh, art style. Yeah. Um, I think honestly, if you like the art in the loop, and if you think the idea of using time boots to kick a, a duplicate of an evil villain into the Stone Age and they die, if that sounds fun to you, then I'd say, hey, yeah, no, get the loop. <laughs> you it's go really, for it. really good. And if you it's like really, the really idea good. of uh, making a desert slightly more habitable putting some archers on a boat and looking at fantasy cleavage, then Fantasy Realms is the game for you. <laughs> I do. I mean, yeah, no, God. I really, I, I, my feelings on fantasy are so, so mixed. I love it and hate it in exactly equal measure. Um, I'm a complex figure, Tom. That's just who I am. That is the end of this 143rd episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We talked about some games. If you want to see one of us talk about games visually, then Quinns has got a hot review of Summoner Wars 2nd Edition, a game that he battered me in over and over and over again. It's a good review. It's a very good game, right? It's a very good game. A very lovely little uh, collectible two-player card game. I, I Tom, I... I'm, I appreciate that you pointed people towards our YouTube channel, uh, the Shut Up and Sit Down uh, YouTube channel, where we host all of our reviews. Also, I'd like to thank you for for the service of getting uh, absolutely trounced by me over and over <laughs> and over again in the in the in the during my uh, playtesting. It's it's just edition. great to be the company punching bag when it comes to anything that involves like head to head interaction. But I know that I will demolish you at Coffee Traders, and that's all that matters. That is, well, it's, it's. It, I mean, I, th I think it's just one of the things that matters. I do think beating me at head-to-head -head games matters, but we can discuss that after the, after the, uh, after the podcast's over. Yeah, okay, okay. Thank you, thank you very much thanks, for listening thanks, to this podcast. Thanks for listening, uh, gang. I've been Quince. I've been uh, uh, Tom. Yeah, also, uh, yeah. cool. And, uh, and uh, we've created a great outfit here today. Adventure! Uh <laughs>